Good morning, again. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 20, and I'm going to go ahead and read the entire chapter. Genesis chapter 20. Holy Scripture says, beginning in Genesis 20, verse 1, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, She is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me me at every place to which we come. Say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of God, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, uh, we, we come before you as children who need to hear the words of the Lord. Father, we pray that these words would nourish us, instruct us, and transform us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we, as we turn our attention to, to Genesis chapter 20, we have come now 
to the 35th sermon in uh, the series on the book of Genesis. I'm very pleased with how this, this church family is receiving these messages from Genesis, which are so important and foundational to developing our minds and manner of life as believers, to be rooted in the founda- very foundations of Scripture. One of the great things about the Bible is that it does not hide people's flaws. Although Abraham worships God and walks with God, Abraham is not a, is not a perfect man. This side of heaven, people who have a right relationship with the Father are still beset by various shortcomings and weaknesses, and Abraham is no exception. When we read Genesis chapter 20, many of us recall Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 to 20. Do you remember? Abraham sojourned in Egypt. That, That was like two decades earlier. He instructed Sarah to to tell people that she was Abraham's brother and to leave out the important bit that she was his wife. Pharaoh took Sarah into his house and the Lord brought affliction upon the house of Sarah. And as the truth became known, Pharaoh was not pleased with Abraham and said to him, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Genesis 12, 18. Thereafter, Pharaoh returned Sarah to Abraham, and then Abraham and Sarah were sent away. So a very similar thing happens now, 15 to 20 years later, in Genesis chapter 20. In fact, Genesis chapter 20 informs us that Abraham and Sarah may have played this game on a regular basis. Verse 13, And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. So this was something of a standard operating procedure. (laughs) This is the kindness you must do to me in every place. Mislead people about the nature of our relationship. When, when, uh, When the kindness that someone else requests of you would require you to be an agent of misinformation, you'd better slow down and think critically about what you are being asked to do. In any case, what Genesis 20 shows us is that Abraham is demonstrating the same immaturity that he had demonstrated in Egypt 20 years earlier. Bad, old habits, die hard. Sometimes we unlearn foolishness at an astonishingly slow pace. But although the the follies and the foibles stick to us, God remains faithful to those whom he has chosen. The grace of God shone brightly upon Abraham and Sarah down in Egypt, and here again the grace of God shines brightly upon Abraham and Sarah down in Gerar. So let's, let's walk through the passage, and then we'll conclude with some very rich, practical reflection. So first, Abraham misrepresents his relationship to Sarah in Gerar. From Genesis uh, 13, 18, all the way into Genesis 18, 1, Abraham had been living, living by the oaks of Mamre uh, near Hebron. And from his dwelling place in Mamre... Abraham had recently seen the smoke 
rising in the Jordan Valley as Sodom and Gomorrah had been destroyed in Genesis chapter 19. Shortly thereafter, Abraham decided to journey south and ended up settling in a place called Gerar for a time. As Abraham entered this unfamiliar part of the world, he was once again afraid that if the locals found out that Sarah was his wife, they might kill him in order to get her. Therefore, Abraham misled the locals and identified Sarah as his sister. Although she technically was his sister, this doesn't change the fact that Abraham's intent was to mislead people into the mistaken notion that Sarah was not his wife. Abraham deceived the people of Gerar and their king. In light of the misinformation spread by Abraham, Abimelech, king of Gerar, proceeded to take Sarah into his house. As I said in the sermon four months ago, in Genesis 12, Abraham's wife has no business being in another man's house as an object of romantic interest. As it is, Abraham bears responsibility for giving the impression that Sarah was not spoken for. Abraham bears responsibility for not seeking to protect his wife's purity as well as the integrity of their marriage. As we learn in verse 2, Now we have a big problem. The patriarch's wife, through whom the promised seed is to be born, has entered the house of a pagan king. Having lied about his relationship with Sarah and now having his wife's compromising circumstance shaped by his lie, Abraham is not in a good position to fix the problem and protect Sarah. But God has no such limitations. So as we come to verses 3 to 7, God confronts Abimelech. Verse 3, God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. The fact that, Ab- the, the fact that Abimelech misunderstood Sarah's relationship to Abraham doesn't change the fact that it was objectively wrong for him to take another man's wife into his house. Abimelech's action violated the marriage covenant between Abraham and Sarah. And that makes Abimelech an adulterer, even though he did not have physical relations with Sarah, as the beginning of verse 4 makes clear. Objectively, Abimelech is in violation of God's law and God's design for marriage, and God's law prescribes death for adulterers. Genesis 23 reflects the scriptural teaching that marriage should be held in high honor among human beings. But at this point, Abimelech asserts his innocence to God. uh, He says, verse 4, Lord, Will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Abimelech asserts his innocence on the basis of the fact that he had acted honorably with the information that had been presented to him. Abimelech didn't know that Sarah was Abraham's wife. Abimelech had been informed by both Abraham and Sarah that they were siblings to each other. And so in this sense, Abimelech maintains that he had conducted himself with integrity at the heart level and that his action was not blameworthy. God's answer comes in verse 6. 
God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. God grants Abimelech's point and affirms that Abimelech had indeed taken Sarah with integrity of heart, with a clear conscience. Objectively speaking, the action of taking another man's wife into your house with romantic intentions lacks integrity. But in terms of heart attitude, Abimelech was not knowingly acting in opposition to Abraham and Sarah's marriage covenant. Then God makes it clear to Abimelech that the fundamental reason why Abimelech had not yet proceeded to commit physical adultery with Sarah is that God himself prevented it. Verse 6, it was I who kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. God so governed Abimelech's mindset, desires, and circumstances that he prevented Abimelech from committing physical adultery. Abimelech had committed adultery in a formal sense, but he had not committed adultery in a physical sense. Verses 3 to 6 teach us some very important lessons. One lesson is that although we bear responsibility for the sins that we commit in ignorance, sins committed in ignorance are not nearly as bad as sins committed with eyes wide open. If Abimelech had known that Sarah was Abraham's wife and had still taken Sarah into his house, then he would have been guilty of a high-handed sin. When you sin in ignorance, you are still sinning in that you are objectively violating God's law, but your heart may not be intending to violate God's law, and in that sense it may be said that your misdeed was done in the integrity of your heart. To put this, to, to give a very simple example, if you assume that the speed limit is 55 miles per hour when it is actually 35 miles per hour, you are breaking the law, but you might not be intending to break it. But if you know that the speed limit is 35 miles per hour and drive 55 miles per hour anyway, and there's no extraordinary exceptional circumstances justifying it, then you are knowingly and deliberately breaking the law. Of course, taking a man's wife is of much greater consequence than driving too fast across town. When you commit sins with eyes wide open, you are more blameworthy than when you sin in ignorance. Abimelech sinned in ignorance and God kept him from compounding that sin with a worse sin. Another lesson here in verses 3 to 6 is that sin must ultimately be understood in relationship to God. If Abimelech had gotten to the point of having physical relations with Sarah, then he would have been committing a sin against Sarah and against Abraham and against their marriage. But did you notice what God said when he told Abimelech that he had prevented him from sinning? What did he say? God told Abimelech, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. That reminds me of what King David said in his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. David had sinned against Bathsheba, against Uriah, and against Joab, and really against the whole nation. But what, what did David say in Psalm 51.4? Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your 
sight. What we learn from Psalm 51.4 and from Genesis 26 is that sin is ultimately against God. Sin is not defined as an offense against a human being. Sin is not defined as an offense against the feelings and opinions of men. Sin is defined as an offense against the Holy One whose standards are perfect and unchanging. As we come to verse 7, what we will see is that even though Abimelech had acted with integrity in terms of his own motivation, nevertheless the fact remains that Sarah being in his house was not right and he needed to fix it. God tells Abimelech what to do in verse 7. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. The command and promise are clear. Return Sarah to Abraham and you will live. The warning for disobedience is equally clear. If you don't return Sarah, then you and the members of your house will die. This simple command, promise, and warning in verse 7 is a small echo of a great truth that recurs throughout the Scripture. Obedience is the pathway to life, and disobedience is the pathway to death. Verse 7 also tells us that God's plan is for Abraham, upon Abimelech's repentance, is, is for Abraham to pray for Abimelech, and God will work through Abraham's intercession to bring healing to Abimelech and his house. What kind of effect did God's confrontation of Abimelech have upon Abimelech? Well, evidently it had an alarming and sobering effect upon him. Abimelech didn't blow it off or suppress it. He took the rebuke and warning with utmost seriousness. Verse 8 summarizes the effect that the divine revelation had upon him. He, he, gathered, he gathered his servants together, and he, he told them what had happened. Uh, it, it, it makes sense that Abimelech told his servants because, because the issue that concerned Abimelech really concerned the well-being of the entire city. The entire city was in danger on account of this grave deed. And the, the, the mood among the men was fearful and gloom. They were gripped with fear. And the lingering question is, what is Abimelech going to do? Well, that brings us to the next section, verses 9 to 13, when Abimelech confronts Abraham. After God's confrontation of Abimelech, Abimelech decided to confront Abraham in verses 9 to 13. Abimelech is rightly upset at Abraham because Abraham mistreated him. Abimelech's unjust relationship with Sarah was based on Abraham's unjust speech. If someone else's lie has facilitated your own unrighteousness, you've still got to fix your own unrighteousness, but you're going to be not so happy with the liar who set things in motion, who set you up. Abimelech's confrontation of Abraham begins in verse 9. What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And then Abimelech adds in verse 10, what did you see that you did this thing? Abimelech is pleading his own innocence before Abraham. If Abimelech had previously sinned against Abraham, then Abraham's lie might have been a form of retaliation 
against Abimelech, but Abimelech certainly regards himself as not guilty of any previous sin against Abraham. Abimelech's final question, what did you see that you did this thing, is more open-ended, and Abraham more or less answers that question in the following verses. Verse 11, Abraham says, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. In other words, Abraham saw danger. He looked upon the city of Gerar as a place characterized by ungodliness and by a willingness to murder a male sojourner in order to get the man's wife. Perhaps Abraham thought that Gerar was just as corrupt and unruly as Sodom and Gomorrah. The bottom line is that Abraham saw trouble. He perceived grave danger and a threat to his own life. And this is why Abraham did what he did. He sacrificed the truth. He sacrificed the integrity of his marriage. He risked the purity of his wife. He risked the welfare of the city of Gerar and its king, all in order to protect his own skin. In verses 12 and 13, we find out that Abraham's she is my sister ruse was a standard operating procedure that he had established with Sarah many years earlier, that this would be part of their regular plan as they visited new places. In verse 12, we find out that Abraham's she is my sister routine was technically true. She is indeed my sister, Abraham says, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So Sarah was Abraham's half-sister. Now the law of God in the book of Leviticus would eventually forbid conjugal unions between a man and his half-sister, but that law was not yet in effect, and there was nothing improper about Abraham marrying his half-sister. And then, and then Abraham identifies their, their plan that they'd had for decades now, and when God caused me to wander from my father's house, verse 13, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Although Abraham and Sarah could truthfully identify themselves as brother and sister, the, the, the problem is, is that in communicating that they were brother and sister, they were really intending to communicate that they were not husband and wife. And therein lies the deception, the lie, the sin. Now, I doubt that Abimelech was all that satisfied with Abraham's answer to his question. But Abimelech knew that his primary responsibility was not to hammer out the details with Abraham, but was to obey God's word. And in this case, getting right with God involved his relationship with Abraham and Sarah. And so Abimelech proceeds to demonstrate large-hearted obedience to God. And I say large-hearted because what Abimelech does in verses 14 to 16 is not a stingy and minimalistic act of outward obedience. Abimelech doesn't say, take Sarah, pray for me, and get out of here. I'm done with you. Abimelech does much more, thus showing that his obedience was hearty and willing. First, Verse 14, Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. Objectively, 
Abimelech had dishonored Abraham and Sarah and their marriage by taking Sarah. Now Abimelech not only returns Sarah, but he honors Abraham and enriches them both. Second, Abimelech shows hospitality to Abraham. Verse 15, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Abimelech's generous offer of land to Abraham in conjunction with his generous gift of livestock and servants to Abraham may be viewed from three perspectives. From the perspective that Abraham had mistreated Abimelech by deceiving him, Abimelech's generosity was an act of grace to someone who didn't deserve it. From the perspective that Abimelech had violated the marriage covenant between Abraham and Sarah, Abimelech's generosity may be viewed as an act of restitution and goodwill. And most importantly, from the perspective of God's command and God's revelation that Abraham is a prophet of the living God and that God appointed Abraham to intercede for Abimelech's well-being, Abimelech's generosity is an act of trust and obedience and devotion to the Lord. Abimelech is willing to do it God's way, even though it costs him pride and possessions. Third, Abimelech honors and vindicates Sarah. Verse 16, to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. A thousand pieces of silver is not a mere pittance. I mean, in Exodus chapter 21, the value, the economic value of a slave was reckoned at 30 shekels of silver. By way of comparison, the woman Sarah and the vindication of her innocence was priceless. And the surpassing gift of a great sum, the abundance of silver, testified to her worth. Now, in the context of Genesis chapter 20, do you understand why Sarah's public vindication was so important? Do you understand why it was so important for people to know that no physical adultery had taken place between Abimelech and Sarah? Do you remember the time period during which this is taking place? In Genesis chapter 18, the Lord told Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son in one year's time. And so from the time of that promise in Genesis 18, 14, the 12-month the, the clock was ticking on the fulfillment of God's promise. That was Genesis 18. Do you know what happens at the beginning of Genesis chapter 21? Isaac is born. And so, given that the duration of a typical pregnancy is around nine months, we know that Sarah conceived Isaac approximately nine months before the beginning of Genesis chapter 21. This means that the events of Genesis chapter 20 took place in close proximity to the time when Sarah conceived Isaac. We can be confident that when Abimelech took Sarah into her house, Sarah did not show any signs of pregnancy. It's possible that she was super early in pregnancy, it's also possible that she was just about to get pregnant with Abraham very soon, by Abraham very soon. Either way, Sarah's brief time in Abimelech's house 
would look very suspicious given that her conception had already just taken place or was just about to take place. So it was really important for people to know that no physical relations had taken place between Abimelech and Sarah. The child Isaac, who was either already growing inside her womb or was about to be conceived, was Abraham's son, not Abimelech's son. By the way, the proximity of, in time of Isaac's conception to the events of Genesis chapter 20 make Abraham's actions all the more stupid and wrong-headed. What is Abraham thinking to let his possibly pregnant or soon-to-be-pregnant wife into the house of another man? On the assumption that, that, that she'd be thought of as an unmarried woman who can be taken into another man's harem. That's really foolish. But be that as it may, Abimelech acts so as to publicly honor and vindicate Sarah in the sight of all. Finally, verses 17 and 18, God's plan for Abraham to pray for a repentant Abimelech comes to fruition in verses 17 and 18. Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children, for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The prophet Abraham prays, the pagan king Abimelech gets healed, and the Lord reopens the womb of the women in Abimelech's house. What are we supposed to take away from this passage? There are some wonderful takeaways from this passage. But when I say that there are some wonderful takeaways, I don't mean that there are three, three uh, neat and tidy applications all wrapped up in a red bow. Scripture is worth far more than a thousand pieces of silver, but silver extraction takes work. Think about it. Genesis chapter 20 describes a unique historical event. It is highly unlikely that you'll ever find yourself in the situation that Abraham and Sarah found themselves in in Genesis chapter 20. The command in the passage, return the man's wife, is tailored very specifically to Abimelech's unique circumstance. How, how can this passage nourish and sustain our spiritual walk? By directing our attention to three areas. First, God is faithful, bank on it. God has made lavish promises to Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 to 18, including the promise of having a son by Sarah in the near future. And God has every intention of seeing to it that his promises come to fruition. His faithfulness is not only the expression of his good character, but is also the expression of his authoritative governance of the entire world. It's possible to imagine people, ordinary human beings, who have good character, who nevertheless are greatly limited in their ability to carry out their desires because they're weak and fragile human beings. But, uh, you, you know, you can, think of, you can think of good generals, good soldiers, good leaders who had great intentions, but they failed. Their side lost. They were weak. They weren't God. God, however, has no such limitations. He's able to override the foolish actions of his people. He's able to reveal himself to a pagan king. He's able to keep a powerful man like Abimelech from sinning. 
He's able to rescue his people out of the troubling circumstances that they got themselves into. He's able to weave a beautiful tapestry of grace from the raw material of sin-laden people like you and me. If Sarah had not yet conceived Isaac when she went into Abimelech's house, and if she had then spent an, uh, an extended time in Abimelech's house, that would have, humanly speaking, thrown a wrench into the plan. But God sees to it that the, that the wrench flying in midair doesn't land in the center of the plan. God guards Abraham and Sarah's marriage. God protects the purity of Sarah's womb. God preserves the plan to get Isaac into the world at the appointed time so that eventually Jesus gets into the world at the appointed time so that there's a perfect sacrifice to bring forgiveness and restoration to the Abrahams and Abimelechs of the world. When I say that we should bank on God's faithfulness, I don't mean that we should presume upon it. Remember what we learned from the example of Jesus in the temptation in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, Jesus totally depended on the Father's faithfulness. And that was his reason for not doing a big stunt, throwing himself off of the temple in order to create a situation whereby he needed the Father to do a dramatic rescue. We shouldn't knowingly and deliberately do stupid things in order to create opportunities for the faithfulness of God. That's presumptuous. But we are weak human beings, and without much deliberateness, we often stumble into foolish schemes. So before, during, and after your folly, remember that for those of us who belong to the Father through trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, our folly is not the end of the story. God will cause his promises and purposes to hold sway in our lives. God will get his Abrahams and Sarahs where he intends for them to be, and he is more than able to get us there through the detours and wrong turns that we ourselves took. God is faithful, bank on it. Second, life is messy, don't pretend otherwise. If you don't see the uncomfortable messiness of this passage, let me be the one to point it out to you. Abraham told Abimelech that there is no fear of God at all in this place, verse 11, and yet, at least in the specific circumstance of Genesis 20, Abraham's perception seems unfounded. And not only that, but one wonders to what degree Abraham feared God as he entered into Gerar. Abraham fears man. They will kill me because of my wife. And he's willing to practice deception and put Sarah at risk in order to protect himself. Abraham's fear of God and trust in God are not shining brightly at this moment. On the other hand, Abimelech's response to the revelation that he receives is to fear God. <laughs> Abimelech feared God and turned away from the evil that he had stumbled into. Abimelech feared God and obeyed the command that he received from God. Even prior to the divine revelation that Abimelech received, God confirms that Abimelech had acted with integrity of heart. One would be hard-pressed to say that Abraham had acted in the integrity of his heart, in the ruse that put Sarah at risk. The prophet, for Abraham is called a prophet in verse 7, the prophet deceives and endangers others. 
In Genesis 18, the Lord revealed that he chose Abraham so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And yet in Genesis 29, 20 verse 9, Abimelech is giving Abraham a miniature lecture on righteousness. The prophet has gotten careless, but the pagan king, after being rebuked by God, responds with repentance. Abraham does not publicly honor Sarah when he allows her to be escorted off into the king's house. But when Abimelech returns Sarah, Abimelech publicly honors and vindicates Sarah. Do you see the uncomfortable messiness of this passage? But there's more. God stands by his flawed prophet protecting and preserving him. God publicly identifies with his flawed prophet. Far from disowning Abraham, God declares Abraham to be a prophet. God will not abandon his covenant partner. Moreover, God makes the prayer of his flawed prophet the means of bringing healing to Abimelech in Abimelech's house. Aren't you glad that God stands by his flawed church, protecting and preserving us? Aren't you glad that God identifies with his flawed church? Far from disowning us, God declares us to be his people. And, and yes, God makes our prayer and our evangelism the means of bringing salvation to the world. I'm not at all suggesting that Abimelech's life was, that his overall life was more righteous than Abraham's. Genesis 20 is just a snapshot, but it's an uncomfortable snapshot. And it's a real snapshot. And my point in sharing it is to humble us. We ought to be humbled that sometimes the people who ought to know better do poorly, and the people who know less than we do show us up. My point, please note well, is not that Abraham needs to learn from Abimelech or that the church needs to, needs to learn from the world. That's not my point. My, my, my point is that Abraham really needs to learn from the Lord and we need to really learn from the Lord so that we actually have some riches to share with the world. In the end, God treats Abraham far better than Abraham deserves to be treated, and God treats Abimelech far better than Abimelech deserves to be treated. No sinner deserves to be kept from additional sinning. No sinner deserves to be restored and healed. No sinner deserves to be spared the consequences of his own foolishness. No sinner deserves to be the means of bringing blessing to another sinner. And yet God pours out his grace on sinners, on Abraham, on Sarah, on Abimelech. Don't walk away from this passage without a fresh glimpse of the mercies of God. Third, and finally, God has some beautiful surprises Lean into them. What I specifically have in mind is the beautiful surprise of a healed relationship that emerged out of the messiness. Now, don't misunderstand me. Genesis 20 is not a manual on relationships, and I'm not about to give you seven steps to do this or that. But I want you to see the brilliant rays of light for grace-shaped relationships that shines in Genesis chapter 20. What are the odds of a man giving up his wife to another man through an act of deception and that other man believing the deception and taking that man's wife for himself? What are the odds of those two men entering into a gracious relationship with each other? I mean, this whole thing is really messed up. It would have been so easy 
for the relationship between Abraham and Abimelech to have been stained with shame and regret and fear and anger for the rest of their lives. But that's not how it played out. Instead, as both men submitted to God, they were brought into meaningful and gracious relationship with each other. And as it turns out, the lessons here might be very timely for some of you who are sitting here in the sanctuary today. Let's look at it from Abimelech's perspective and from Abraham's perspective. Put yourself in Abimelech's position. For Abimelech, submitting to God meant honoring two people, Abraham and Sarah, who had lied to him and put his life and his kingdom on the edge of disaster. Think about it. Someone lied to you. Someone misled you. Someone prompted you to take what you thought was a reasonable action, but it proved to be disastrous. Someone put you into a compromising position. And then God impresses upon you that you need to demonstrate goodwill to this person. In fact, God impresses upon you that your well-being depends upon showing goodwill to this person. Although we don't live through the unique circumstances of Genesis 20 every day, we do walk through the minefields of complaints and grievances on an everyday basis. And our Lord's teaching is clear. Our well-being, in part, depends on demonstrating goodwill to the people who hurt us. We confess this truth every time we pray. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do we forgive our debtors? Do we let love cover a multitude of injurious sins? In terms of Genesis 20, the fact of the matter is that God treats his chosen servant Abraham with an abundance of mercy. And when Abimelech ends up treating Abraham with an abundance of mercy, Abimelech is in some small but real way reflecting God's mercy to Abraham. In this moment, at least, Abimelech is not far from the kingdom of God, for he is learning to be merciful to the people that God is merciful to. Are you learning to be merciful to the people that God is merciful to? The beautiful surprise of a healed relationship can also be explored by putting yourself in Abraham's position. Think about it. You're the spiritual adult in the room. You're the prophet. You're the man or woman of God, and you've just pursued a course of action that has brought trouble into someone else's life. How embarrassing. How shameful. Part of you would just prefer to run away and hide, but God doesn't let you cut and run. Instead, as his representative, you must stand before the person that you hurt. You must receive their repentance. And you must pray for them. Really? Yes, really. Your prayer is key for bringing healing to the person that you hurt. Do you, see the, do you see the beauty here? At the, beginning of, at the beginning of chapter 20, Abraham is a source of trouble to Abimelech in Abimelech's house. But at the end of chapter 20, Abimelech is a source of healing for Abimelech and Abimelech's house. Beautiful. And so in a painfully roundabout way, the call upon Abraham to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, Genesis 12, 3, gets enacted upon Abimelech's family in the city of Gerar all according to God's plan, not Abraham's. Think practically. A husband brings trouble to his wife, but his prayer is going to be key to his wife's healing. Parents bring trouble to their children, but the parents praying is going to be key to the healing 
of their children. Pastors and elders hurt the congregation, and yet their prayers are going to be key for the healing of the congregation that they hurt. Too many people with way too much encouragement from fleshly-minded people, too many people run away, hide in shame, and conclude that there's no point in praying because they've blown it. But that perspective is not the fruit of grace. Grace leads people who blow it to humble themselves before the Lord and then to offer up meaningful prayer for the people they've hurt. Fragile ones, clothe yourselves in the grace of God, take up the mantle of intercessory prayer, and pray effectual prayers for other people, starting with the ones that you've hurt, lied to, and offended. First and foremost, do this as an act of devotion to the Lord, but upon doing so, don't be surprised when a broken relationship starts to move toward becoming a beautiful relationship. Goodwill between two parties. In Genesis chapter 21, at the end of chapter 21, Abraham and Abimelech will make a goodwill treaty with one another. God has some beautiful surprises in store. Lean into them. Life is messy. Don't pretend otherwise. God is faithful. Always bank on it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take the riches of this passage, transform our lives, our daily walk with you, our relationships with others. I pray that there would be an outpouring of mercy and grace upon our families, marriages, relationships within the body, extended family. Father, I pray that you would weave together a tapestry of grace out of the brokenness of our lives. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.